0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. Thank you, Tim and Callie. Man, that, that there's no better introduction to uh, to the passage that we're going to be looking at today, which is Colossians chapter 1, 15 through twenty-three. That they just sang so beautifully. Uh, the actual words that we're going to be looking at together here Colossians chapter one it's page 572 if uh, if you need a bible there's a bible in the seat uh, in front of you or behind you or somewhere around you there's a paperback bible and you can turn there and we've been in a series on the preeminence of Christ in Colossians and my name is Rob if we've never met before I just want to say hello and so glad that you are here joining us today Uh, There was this theologian, and uh, his name was A.W. Tozer. Anybody ever heard of that guy's name? I'm glad he's still known, man. Uh, Really well known in my college years. I don't hear his name uh, very often. But he has this famous quote, and it goes like this. What comes into our minds when we think about what God is like is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about us, he says, is what comes into our mind." When we think about what God is like. And he goes on to say, the reason is, is because the heart never moves beyond the mental image that we have of God. And how that works itself out in our day-to-day life is if you believe that God is powerful, that comes to your mind minute that you think about God, but in the same moment you think that he is irritated, sort of like your father was irritated at you or stays irritated at you, then he's an irritated father who's powerful and the heart doesn't move towards that God. If he's all knowing, but his knowledge of you makes him frustrated and disappointed, the heart doesn't move. If he is holy, but he is not beautiful and he is not glorious and he's not one to To gaze upon heaven does not have very much appeal to you. Or if he's loving, if he is compassionate, but he's too weak to help. You you can't approach him for mercy and for help. The heart doesn't move towards that. So very important, what comes to our mind when we think about God must be the truth. Otherwise, we get all tangled up with, with error. And we've all got these kind of foggy notions of what God is like. And that's why we need... The Bible so much. Or why we need so clearly what scripture says about who God is. And the reason I've mentioned that quote from A.W. Tozer is that it seems like Paul's burden throughout the book of Colossians is to clarify what God is like. He wants it to be crystal clear. Here's who he is And here's what he is like. And the way that he does it throughout the book of Colossians, it's just kind of a cycle of themes that he kind of runs through and comes back to over and over again. He does it in Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, all of his letters. There seems to be this cycle, and it is this. Who is Jesus? Let's be clear on who he is. Let's be clear on what Jesus has done. And then let's be very clear on what that means for us today who we are now. So who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and who we are now is the outline of verses 15 through 23. And we're just going to take those step by step. And let's pray before we do. Father, we come to you now as we get into your word, as we've just heard it sung. Lord, now we we hear it, and now we read it, and we ask God that you would open up our hearts to see All that you would have for us today, Lord, we are open to you. So Spirit, we we recognize we can't see without your help. So open up our eyes and open up our ears and draw our hearts to the right uh, reality and the right truth of who you are for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's look first at who Jesus is. Arguably Paul's favorite topic is to go into detail of who Jesus is. He loves to pull the curtain back and clarify exactly who Jesus is. Look at verse 15. Here's who he is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that is... Not a statement that God has always been silent because we know from other places in Scripture that he is everything but silent. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. All creation shouts to us that there is a glorious God over all of creation, And not only creation, but Romans 1 tells us our conscience says the exact same thing. Our conscience and creation reveals over and over again uh, this God. But this God has been invisible, not able to be clearly seen until Jesus comes on the scene and makes the invisible God visible. He is the image of the invisible God. John 1.18 says it this way. No one has ever seen God. The only God, speaking about Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side. In other words, the closest relationship possible. He has made him known. Some translations say he has explained him. He is the explanation of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God who we've never seen and can't see until we see who God is in the person of Jesus. So, Jesus answers the age-old question of what is God like? Have you ever wondered that question? Have you ever talked to somebody and they've wondered that question? I just wonder what God is like. We can be at peace and we can be at rest today because God has revealed exactly what God is like In the person of Jesus. If we want to know what his character is like. If we want to know what his heart is like. If we want to know what he thinks about things. If we want to know who is he and how would he respond to certain circumstances. We need to look no further than the person of Jesus. Because Jesus explains perfectly what God is like. Hebrews 1 says it this way. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is how we see the glory of God And he is the exact imprint of his nature. He is not a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy that sort of, kind of, reflects who God is. Hebrews tells us he is the exact imprint. So listen, Jesus is not kind of like God. He is not kind of like God. The Bible tells us Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature and is God, of very God. Jesus is God. And he goes on to explain how we know that is true because he says that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this word firstborn causes some stumbling because at first glance, firstborn the temptation is to separate that into two words, but firstborn is one word, and it means status and privilege. It does not mean made or created it 's a very unique word that Paul is using, and he has nowhere in his mind that Jesus was created or made with this word when you uh, you know when you when you think of it as two words uh, you get you arrive at a completely different idea of who God is like and and it matters in our language as well. So there's a big difference between me talking about a greenhouse, right, and a greenhouse. I'm talking about two totally different things, a greenhouse and a greenhouse. I think Frosty the Snowman could live a little longer in a greenhouse, but what happened when he went into a greenhouse? He melted away. Okay, sorry, that's just, that, that's free. There's a big difference. So language matters, and he is using one word, not two. If you separate those two, you get to a philosophy and a theology that is called Arianism. Arius was this guy way back in the early church days that believed that Jesus was this exalted creator of all things, but he himself was created. At some point, Jesus came into being, and he got a big following with that. Uh, because they, they interpreted this as he was born. He must be born if the word says firstborn. But that's not what it says. And in today's uh, religious uh, landscape, Jesus is a premier figure in many religions like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and even our Islamic friends. But he is understood in those contexts as being created. And in all those systems of religion, you can have a varying degree of Jesus's exaltation. But still retain that he is created. At some point he came into being. And if you believe that, then he's not eternal. And he's not fully God. You've got a higher being over who Jesus is. And that is not what Paul is saying here. Jesus is fully and equally God at all times. God of very God. And firstborn is a statement of his royal place in uh, in the Godhead. The eternal Godhead. And so look at verse 16. For, and we know this is true, because for by him all things were created. This is a statement of his deity. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So if you take verse 16 and just just look at it as a whole, you're going to see that Jesus is the source and the means of all creation. He says it two different ways. For by him all things were created. And finishes out that thought, all things were created through him. By Jesus all things are created. Through Jesus all things are created. Paul is answering the question, who created everything? And he gives the answer, the Son of God, Christ, Jesus, created all things. Now, the Jews would have understood that the creator God is Yahweh, the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush and said, I am that I am. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is about to go On display, among the Egyptian people, I'm going to use your frailty and your weakness to accomplish my good purposes. And I'm going to give you my name. And my name is I am that I am. I have always been. And the Jewish people would understand that this God created everything beautiful. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the creator. And then Jesus comes on the scene into a religious crowd. He tells the Pharisees, before Abraham was... Maybe you remember the scene. He says, I am. So make no mistake about it. Jesus is saying, When you read the book of Genesis and you're in chapter one, I'm right there, speaking the world into existence by the word of my power. So he he becomes visible in the book of Matthew. But he is right there in Genesis chapter 1, creating all things. Well, what all things? Well, notice what he creates. All things in heaven. Now, Paul's talking about the atmosphere. Paul had no Hubble telescope. He had nothing but the naked eye to stare out and look up at the the sky. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is declaring that Jesus created all that he could see. All the stars. All the planets. All the galaxies. My favorite place uh, to be at the Perot Museum is in that bubble. I don't know if you've ever been to the, you know, the bubble, this little space bubble. You just kind of step in there and you just look out at all the stars and all the galaxies and just science just pummels you with all the information of what's out there. And it's just breathtaking. I absolutely love it. Well, he's saying Jesus is the creator, He created the stars personally. And all the galaxies. What else? All things on earth. All things in heaven. All things on earth. Every kind of animal. Every kind of plant. Every kind of food. Everything that is good and pleasurable in its original source. Untainted by evil and sin. Including work. Including eating. Including singing. Music. Dancing. All of it. Everything good on this earth Jesus is the source of all that goodness. Every human, every race made in the image of God. Jesus, the source and the means of all of that creation. Notice, visible and invisible. So Paul recognizes, I can't see it all. I got, I got uh, uh, limited tools uh, at that time. But to, as tools have developed, we just discover more and more Of what Jesus has created both in the atmosphere and in the sky with the Hubble telescope. Uh, They tell us now that there are uh, drones that are coming. They're going to be able to to canvas the ocean floor and discover all the animals that we can't get to. Because it's just so far deep down there. The the only person enjoying those creatures right now is God himself. Because nobody can see those things. And uh, so all of these things that we can't currently see but are in development. Jesus is the source of creation. So with every high-power microscope or Hubble telescope or anything else, we discover more and more all of his creation. And then Paul takes an interesting tone. He, he goes from all these things, heaven, earth, and this, this thought, and then kind of doesn't switch subjects but inserts something that is curious. He says, weather thrones." Or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. And that thought comes kind of fast, right? Because I'm, I'm still thinking about stars and animals, and then he's talking about thrones and dominions. And I'm like, what are we talking about there, Paul? Well, he is speaking, obviously, that every ruler on the earth, Christ has authority over every like physical ruler in the world. We need not fear any government leader. We need not fear any any king, any monarch, any terrorist cell out there. We need not fear any of that, for Christ has authority over every earthly power and over every earthly authority. So certainly that's in mind here, and let that Let that put you at peace. There is no authority outside of his sovereign control. Nobody's wielding a rebellion out there that Jesus is not over and doesn't create the boundaries for. And he has the power to say this far and no further. If if anybody gets a Nobel Peace Prize for what's going on in North and South Korea, let it be Jesus, because he is the one who is brokering any relationship that is, potential relationship that is good among those two countries. So clearly that's in view, but he's, he's speaking actually, I believe, about spiritual authorities. You see, in Ephesians, Paul says, uses the same language when he says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Same language. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I believe what Paul has in mind here are the spiritual forces of evil that he is personally aware of attack He is a man that is regularly under attack. And the Colossian church is regularly under attack. And what he wants them to know is even though you are experiencing regularly spiritual attack, Christ has authority over all of that attack that you are experiencing. Christ has authority over Satan. And Christ has authority over every fallen angel who has rejected God. Because he is the creator of every good thing. Even when those... Those uh, uh, those beings rejected God and fell into evil. So listen, Satan accuses, Satan tempts, and Satan condemns. If you want to know what's what's the strategy of Satan, this is absolutely free. Here's his strategy: he's a liar, and his lies come at us through accusation, and through temptation, and through condemnation, constantly, all the time. More than we are aware, we are being accused, we are being tempted, and we are being con- condemned by the spiritual forces of darkness. Now, that, doesn't, that shouldn't make us afraid, but we should be aware and we should raise up our hands, all of us, and say, You know what I need today is I need the encouragement of the gospel and I need the encouragement of the believers uh, in, in the church because, you know what, I'm, I'm regularly tempted. And I'm regularly accused when I fall into temptation. And then when I fall into temptation, I'm regularly condemned. And this is a cycle that, that, that always comes against us. And Paul knew it well. The Colossian church was experiencing it. And if we are just sensitive to it, we also uh, would be aware that we are regularly under attack. Well, well, Paul is saying that Christ has authority over all of that and can be trusted upon in times of weakness. Notice else, he he, he goes on. All things were created through him and for him. Through him and for him. And that's not a throwaway comment. He's not just like wrapping up that thought with with something that's not meaningful. In Romans 11, Paul says, and he's talking about Jesus. He says, from him, through him. And to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. That's, that's the period that he puts on everything. To him be the glory forever. From him, through him, and, don't forget, to him. Paul says Jesus has stepped into his creation. He's the source of creation. And then he steps into creation as the big reveal. He's the hero and he's the redeemer that all creation hungers and longs for, even in spite of all the good things that he's created. He is the source that all of humanity longs to see and behold and draw near to. Now, I've not seen the latest Avengers movie, but I'm a huge Marvel fan. And in every Marvel movie... There's a cameo moment with Stan Lee. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody a big fan of the the Stan Lee cameo moments? I have historically been a fan. I'm getting a little annoyed at this point. (laughs) So I don't know how he's gonna show up in the latest Avengers movie, but I'm cool with it. I'm good with a cameo from Stan Lee. But If Stan Lee shows up at the end of the latest Avengers movie to take on Thanos, I'm out. I'm turning in my ticket and I'm getting my money back. Because there is no appeal to me for Stan Lee to be the big reveal of the Avengers movie, nor for you. But what Paul is saying here is that the one who created all things is truly the hero of the story because he is the one that is worthy and he is the one that all glory goes back to. The one who created all things is going to recreate all all things and that's why Jesus steps into his own creation. Look at verse 17. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's what we just sang about. All things hold together in Jesus, and he is before everything. If you want something interesting to read, you should should google what holds atoms together. Don't do that right now, but but at some point (laughs) take some time and get some interesting reading of what holds atoms together. Scientist's have said for years, you know, what keeps protons and neutrons and electrons from just going every other direction? And they just, they, something's holding them together, and there's all kinds of theories. Some scientists have said, well, believe it or not, for all you Star Wars nerds, some, some scientists have said there is a mysterious force that's holding them together. Some scientists say, well, it's this microscopic invisible webbing that's holding them together. And others have said, no, it's gluons. It's just they you know, it's like <laughs> gluons. I love that. It's just like, let's just pick something that for sure nobody's gonna argue with gluons, right? Well, I don't know what it is. It, it, it's, uh, it could be all three or it could be some other theory out there. But what Paul is saying is that whatever it is, there's a force behind the force. There's a webbing. There's, there's a, 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 a glue behind the gluons. And he's saying it's the Son of God holding everything together. Everything is being held together by Christ himself. He is active in his creation even now. He didn't just wind up the clock and step back. He's holding everything Together, so I know that's a huge, you know, uh, passage that I've just walked through. But take a deep breath and just just receive everything that Paul has just said. All things are created by and through Jesus. All things were created for Jesus. All things come after Jesus. All things hold together in Jesus. Hebrews says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's doing that right now for us. Right now. Everything in your life right now. Everything in your body right now. Everything in the universe right now. Jesus is actively upholding by the word of his power. So we must ask ourselves right now, is Jesus capable of holding my life together? If his hands can hold up the universe, like we sang as children, he's got the whole world in his hands. Is there anything that he can't hold together? Your marriage, can he hold your marriage together? Can he hold your health together? Can he hold your life together? Your finances together? Well, if you're curious, would he hold my life together? Can I trust him Everything in my life. Well, notice verse 18. We're gonna get to what has Jesus done in verse 18. Well, he, he gives us very clearly what he has done. Verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. Paul says, So now when we think about who Jesus is, we must think about him as connected to people. Specifically, his body, the church. So we can't think of Christ as independent from people. Because he is a head of a body called the church. Christ has once and for all committed himself to people. All kinds of people who have trusted him by faith. And of those people, he is the beginning He's the firstborn from the dead. There's that word again, firstborn. A a, a title of king. A a title of his reigning rule. He's the beginning point for all of those people who have trusted him. this, This beginning point of a new creation. So, not born out of death, that would be separating firstborn. But the firstborn, the one who has triumphed over death. So he's resurrected out of death. He's not born out of death. He has triumphed over death before all of us triumph over death. And he is the spark of a new creation and of a new beginning for all those who come after Jesus by faith. Everybody who follows his lead lives and walks and moves in the triumph of his resurrection. This is a new creation and this new story. Jesus enters into this broken story and recreates it from the inside out. And and that's the new beginning that Paul is referencing. Now, why does he do all of that? Why does he recreate? Well, he recreates that in everything he might be preeminent. That means half first place, but actually means more than just half first place. It doesn't mean just, you know, like, Number one, and then let's hurry up and get to number two, three, four, and five. It's number one, and it influences number two, number three, number four, and number five. It's preeminent. If you just wonder, man, what in the world is God's will for my life? It's that Christ would be preeminent. Everything seems to make sense after Christ is preeminent. And he's first place in our life. So he, he is uh, desiring among us to be preeminent. Verse 19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, our, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So note the logic of what Paul is saying here. He says very clearly, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, not half the fullness. But all the fullness. So he's saying Jesus is fully God. And through Jesus all things have been reconciled because the blood of his cross has made peace. Follow what he's saying. The blood of his cross has made peace and reconciled all things to God. The cross accomplished something specific in our relationship to God. Namely, peace has been made. Peace has been accomplished. Reconciliation has been accomplished. Something specific has taken place before you and I were born. He's made peace. Now this... This uh, statement here leaves some people with a, a real question here. Well, does the statement "all things" mean that all people are reconciled and no longer need repentance and faith in Jesus? Now that that belief is universalism, and uh, and it's I. I think it's on the rise. It's never gone away, but it could potentially be on the rise. There's a Netflix movie called Come Sunday, and it shows the story of a guy named Carlton Pearson, who I think is the first African-American megachurch pastor who essentially it's a story about him losing his friends and losing his church when he changed his view from sort of evangelical understanding to universalism. And it's just a, a brilliantly acted Movie and a number of themes come up uh, throughout it, and, and interestingly, one of the themes that that uh, Carlton Pearson and I think it's a, an accurate representation of his his theology is that he says again and again, insisting that God spoke to me. And so, when people challenge him with what is the Bi- what the Bible says about the things that he is uh, going against, he's he keeps continues to reference that God spoke to me. Well. Uh, we believe God speaks to us, but when he speaks to us, he, he speaks to us in line with what he has spoken before. And, uh, and, and that doesn't come out that, that much in that movie. But, um, but we know that he's not speaking about universalism because it's clear that verses 16 through 17, although they're being used universally, when we get to verse 18 and 20... Uh, we see a narrowing. So look at verse 16 and 17. Very clearly, this is all things in view. This is a universal, universal application is appropriate to verse 16 and 17. All things were created through him and for him. No question about it. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But there's a shift in verse 18. He, he narrows the thought to the head of the body of the church. Do you notice that? We were speaking universally about all creation, but now we're speaking specifically about the church. So the promise of verse 20 to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross is qualified as a promise to the body, the church. And we'll see in just a second that you, he, he, he warns that you can't shift from the faith of the gospel. So there is clearly a responsibility for all people to hold on to that promise qualified by somebody who believes in Jesus and trusts in Jesus and is a part of his body, the church. So the blood of his cross reconciles everything to God of every single person living or dead who is connected to Jesus as their head. Does that make sense? Okay, so a, a, a question, probably a better question, is how does someone become a member of the body and of the church so that Christ is the head? How does Christ, being the head, supplying nourishment to the body, how do I get in on that? How do I experience the peace that Jesus has made, the reconciliation that Jesus has accomplished? I want to get in on the reconciliation part of that. Well, I hope it I wish it was as easy as just joining a church. You know, it's, it says, uh, you know, if you're part of the church, you're reconciled and you're at peace with God. And so some people mistakenly think, well, if I just join a church, uh, that's, that's it. I'll sign a card or, you know, I'll come to Welcome Home class and that will, uh, will reconcile me and I'll be at peace with God. Well, it's, it's not that simple. Uh, nor is it by promising God, I'm going to do better, God. I'm going to create a list of things That I resolve to do and I'm going to follow that list perfectly and then I'm going to present that to you and that will bring about my reconciliation because I'll be a part of your church if I do all these church kind of things. That's not how it, it works either. Paul has said in Romans 5, he says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace has been made. Reconciliation has been made. But the entrance into that gift is by faith. Through faith in the finished work of Jesus, we are justified and we experience the peace that Christ has accomplished on the cross. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Faith is the entry point by which we receive the Peace that Christ has accomplished on the cross. And then we stand in this peace. We stand in this grace and we walk in this grace. So it doesn't go away. It's not like it was here and then it goes away. You move from a place of I don't have peace with God to I am now at peace with God because I'm justified and I'm a part of his perfect reconciliation. I'm in this new place of reconciliation with God. So essentially, coming into that family is admitting to Jesus that you are not connected to his body and that you need life. And you need a new head, like you're part of this head, but you need Christ as your head. You can't see without Christ. You can't hear without Christ. You can't speak. You can't breathe. You need to be reconnected to your creator. And that comes by simply trusting in Jesus. Coming to him and saying, I need your life. I have tried life on my own, and it has only brought me further death and confusion. I want to be reconnected to you, Jesus, as my head, and I want new life. It's as simple as that. Well, lastly, Paul's arguably third favorite topic is who are we now? What does all this mean in terms of who we are before God now. Look at verse 21. It says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul says, man, you, you guys were a mess. <laughs> doing a bunch of evil deeds, hostile in mind to God, Uh just up to no good, alienated from God, you who once were this, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You once were this, and you can remember how you once were, but now you're this. You're reconciled to God. You're at peace with God. You're now a, 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 in an entirely different place with God. Essentially, you're justified. You are declared righteous because you're a benefit of the righteousness of Jesus that he declares on anybody who says yes to Jesus and know to themselves that puts you in this place of justification. Now there's this, this guy in church history, his name's Martin Luther, and he coined the phrase, "Simul justice et Peccator." And uh, that's Latin. I probably didn't say it right. But essentially it means this: that a Christian is simultaneously... Both righteous and a sinner at the same time. Very important that we understand that's what Paul teaches. That's what the New Testament teaches over and over again. We are simultaneously righteous and a sinner at the same time. Now, I find it extremely easy to acknowledge that I am a sinner. And I find it very uncomfortable to acknowledge that I'm righteous in Christ, especially the way the Bible puts it, right? Especially the way he puts, the Bible puts it in Colossians. Colossians can rework uh, our thinking about how God thinks about believers in Christ, so I might acknowledge that I'm righteous, but then I'll put a stronger emphasis on my title as a sinner. Because I don't want to like maybe overstate it. But Paul seems to be consumed with exactly the opposite. So he's already said, notice in chapter 1 verse 12, we saw this last week. That believers are qualified right. to share in the inheritance of the saints in Light he will open up every letter, listen to a bunch of wonky believers who are messing up like the Corinthian church. He will open up that letter, and before he says anything, he will declare that they are saints. He loves the word saints. hey, saints, how you doing i don 't talk to anybody like that, except maybe a new orleans saint i don 't know i, I don 't talk to anybody. Like their saints, and here he says they are saints in light. You are in light, you are in the you're under and cloaked in the blazing light of Jesus, and you are saints in light, and you are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. We saw this last week. It could not be more dramatic. He, he could not use more dramatic language, I don't think. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness, for crying out loud. We were in a domain. I mean, I, That just scares the daylights out of me. A domain of darkness. We were in a domain of darkness. He has delivered us from that domain and transferred us. Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Here's where you were. Domain of darkness. Here's where you are now. Kingdom of his beloved son. Transferred. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. And now in verse 22. He is saying he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy. Blameless. Above reproach before him. The the language is staggering. A holy saint in light, considered by God as holy and blameless. I mean, I got a lot of blameworthy things in my life, and you do too. But as a saint in light, Jesus has taken those things to the cross. And now treats us blameless and above reproach before him. That doesn't mean that our actions don't matter or that our behavior doesn't matter. But growing in godliness according to the New Testament is not a process of becoming what you could be someday. Or what you might be one day but you probably won't be. It's not that. Growing in godliness is a process of becoming what we are right now in God's eyes and what he has guaranteed to announce about us to the world one day. One day Jesus is going to present you to the entire world and declare you how he sees you now which is blameless, pure, holy, not a shred of darkness or evil. He's going to Declare that over you audibly, and he declares that over you now inaudibly through the promise of Scripture. That's how he sees us. He sees us as saints in light, and he says, live like that. Grow into that. Step into that. Walk in that. Anybody ever, you know, you're a little kid, and uh, somebody gave you a, a jacket. You wanted the jacket. I, I don't have a good illustration like this as a kid, but you wanted to wear it so bad, and, uh, and, and it didn't fit. It didn't fit. And somebody, maybe a grandma or an aunt or something, says, "Don't worry, you'll grow into it," and that comforted you. You're like, "Well, I can wear the jacket because I'll, I'll grow into that." That's that's how sanctification works. We grow into what we are and how Christ declares us to be. Because of the cross, we are qualified, holy, forgiven, delivered, transferred, blameless, redeemed saints in light. And we're not even to chapter two. That's this is just staggering. So closing out, let's close out this way. Does that mean that we can live any way that we want? Well, no. Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So there is a responsibility. God has done everything in and through the cross, and yet there's this responsibility. You have to continue on in the faith. You have to Truly believe in Jesus and walk with Jesus. It's not just like, I I had a prayer of faith way back then, but I live any way that I want. No, I have a relationship with Christ as my head. I receive regular nourishment from Christ as my head because I'm a part of his body by faith. I'm in a a grace by faith, but I continue on in, in Christ. And this word if is not a statement of doubt. Very important. I know it's crazy, but in Greek, that word if... Uh, is translated if or since. I know that's not how your bills work in your house, but in, in Greek it's, it's a statement of confidence. Doubt is not in view. Since indeed you continue in the faith, it could also be read. So it matters. Our behavior does matter. And we need to, we need to learn what pleases the Lord, but we need to do that understanding that in Christ we are pleasing to the Lord, and it makes a huge, huge difference. We're gonna stand and, and close with with prayer. Paul says in Philippians one, six, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. Uh, let's let's pray together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.